You know, one of the things that I've noticed, and surely you have too, is that um, Americans sure do love their pithy expressions and sayings. Uh, we've got a lot to choose from. Eat, pray, love, stay humble, keep calm and carry on. That one's not even ours. Live your best life. Perhaps one of the most ubiquitous we see everywhere is live, laugh, love. Uh, perhaps somebody in here maybe even drank coffee this morning from a mug that said live, laugh, love, and, and I'm not knocking. I, I went to Amazon uh, this week and uh, put, typed in live, laugh, love in the, uh, the search bar. There is no end to what you can find with these words printed across them. I mean, you can find dainty wire lettering for your wall, you know, right above your living room couch, live, laugh, love. Of course, there's the coffee mugs. You can find candles and night lights. You can find potholders. You can find clocks. You can find candles. You can find face masks with live, laugh, love. But perhaps my favorite, there's a throw pillow, and there's a scene on it, and it is, there's a beach and in the background, uh, a beautiful ocean. And you see the words live, laugh, love. Oh, wait, I forgot. In the foreground of the picture is Kim Jong-un. And he is laughing. Uh, he's very happy. Uh, oh, and in the uh, background in the ocean is one of his submarines. And so you can buy this throw pillow with Kim Jong-un laughing in front of a submarine. Live, laugh, love. And they attribute the quote to Kim Jong-un. It's amazing. Perhaps my best find, and this wasn't on Amazon, but this is 100% true. I'm not making this up. You can buy a casket, and then when you open it up, presumably for a viewing or a wake, the words lived, laughed, loved. And this particular uh, casket comes, you can only get this in the whitewashed casket uh, line. And so you can actually buy a whitewashed casket, right, tomb, if you will, with the words lived, laughed, loved. And I suppose that these words are more palatable than the words soon to be forgotten. Uh, we're continuing our series in Ecclesiastes during this season of Lent, and Tim noted last week that this book invites us to stop and to think. Why do we do what we do? What is it that we're looking for to give us meaning and purpose? What is it that will make us happy, that will satisfy us? In our passage this morning, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, Koheleth, is in search of a philosophy or a way of life. He wants to find something he can lean into that will serve him best, especially considering his inevitable death. Death looms large in Ecclesiastes. It's his inevitable death and all of the suffering and frustration that ultimately points to that death that sits heavy for the preacher so he leans into a philosophy, perhaps not all that different, from live, laugh, love. Or as he says in verse 1, enjoy yourself. 
And to no one's surprise, he finds that this approach is vanity. So let's read our passage from Ecclesiastes 2, and then we'll pray. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us by your spirit. We ask that you would dig out for us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see Jesus. We do need your help, and so we ask for it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The preacher says to himself, Come now, heart, I will test you with pleasure. Will this pleasure sustain you? Will getting what you want make you happy? And so he gives it the old college try with a number of the things that we ourselves find to be pleasurable. And in verse 2, he tests himself with laughter. And then in verse 3, with wine. And then in verses 4 through 6, he, he searches out whether or not his accomplishments will satisfy him. And then he goes on to see... Uh, what his riches or his sex life will bring him. In verse 10, he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. And surely, there's part of us who hears this. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. And sort of thinks, all right, all right, all right. All right? I mean, this is an inherently indulgent approach, and there's something immediately attractive about it. But at best, it sounds like a risky philosophy, doesn't it? If it feels good, do it. Right? I'll try anything once. But it doesn't really sound like wisdom. And yet we see in verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. 
he actually says, I let my wisdom guide me into foolishness. I thought about this a lot this week, and I have decided I don't think it's as deep as it sounds. How are we to understand what he means by the word wisdom? Here's what I think he's saying. I'm a thinking person. I'm an intentional person. I pay attention. The wisdom he has in mind is the wisdom that comes in hindsight. I've learned my lesson, or this worked, this didn't work. But it's not the same wisdom exactly that we find commended to us in the rest of the Bible. I mean, Proverbs famously says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So experience often yields wisdom. That seems to be the approach laid out for us in this passage. But experience can never be the foundation of wisdom. So here's what the preacher knows. In the verse right before our first verse, in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Vexation and sorrow. And then in verse 3 of this passage, the days of our life are few. This world is hard and death is coming. This fallen world is fraught with struggle. This is what the, the preacher is seeing. Life's hard and then you die. And so we too are encouraged as we read this passage and in this Lenten season to reflect on our own mortality. We will die, every one of us. How do we deal with this? This question's been asked and answered in so many different ways across the world and throughout time. And the experiment of chapter 2 is, well, if it feels good, do it. Or at least try not to get bogged down by the pain and the frustration and your impending death while you live in this fallen world. And he ultimately concludes this is vanity. And so I want us to look briefly at the writer's approach to pleasure, which is particularly self-indulgent. And we'll touch on what he has to say about laughter and wine and accomplishments and riches and sex, and then we'll see if we can do a few things with that. So in verse 2 he says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? He's trying to figure out the purpose both of laughter and of pleasure, But we've got to remember his angle, right? He's trying to avoid the heaviness of the frustration and brokenness in this fallen world. I think Proverbs 14, 13 sort of gets at the idea. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. Or maybe you've heard the expression, sometimes all you can do is laugh, to keep from crying. There's a kind of laughter that we do that fails to reflect what we really feel. There's a kind of laughter that we do that fails to reflect the way things really are. It's a crazy laughter. It's mad. 130 years ago, Robert Horton said, the bright talker, the merry jester, the singer of the gay song, goes home when the party is over, but when he gets home, 
He meets the veiled sorrow of his life and plunges into the chilly shadow in which his days are spent. This kind of laughter not only masks what we really feel, it is painfully temporary. Well, on to other pleasurable pursuits then. Wine it is. He seeks to cheer his body with wine, and I didn't realize this until Tim pointed this out to me on Tuesday in staff meeting, but the slogan, the motto for uh, Belgium, New Belgium Brewery, which is, they make great beer, by the way, is follow your folly. Run headlong into foolishness. I mean, this is basically lifted right out of Ecclesiastes. To what end? We don't want to feel mortal. We don't want to feel the frustration and the brokenness in this fallen world. And we can relate with each other on this. So he indulges in wine, perhaps not all that different from Marilyn Robinson's character Jack in her most recent offering. When payday came, he would spend the money drinking himself to death, more or less, and wake as wretched in mind and body as he already was in spirit. Now, drinking to escape yourself or drinking to escape this world is as temporary of a solution as mad laughter. And it leaves us ill prepared for Monday morning. And this approach to alcohol, the preacher says, is vanity. Okay, well then surely pouring yourself into your accomplishments is a healthier approach to life. Again, we see in verses 4 through 6, I made great works. I I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I made great works. Surely people noticed houses and vineyards and gardens and parks and pools. You get the idea. Surely this was a spectacle, an ancient botanical garden. Truly beautiful. I set out to do great things, and I did great things. You know, Tom Brady, that perennial sermon illustration, just won his seventh Super Bowl. And if you don't follow sports, to call this a remarkable feat is an understatement. This man literally has more Super Bowl rings than any NFL franchise in history. Any. It's remarkable. And in 2005, he already had three. Already a big deal. And in an interview with 60 Minutes, he was asked, he said, you know, there's a lot of people who wouldn't rank you higher than fourth or fifth quarterback in the league. What do you have to say about that? And Brady says, I don't care where they think I rank. I mean, I got three Super Bowl rings. Say whatever you want. Look at the diamonds on these fingers, and that's going to shut up a lot of people. What's he saying? I don't care what people say, but look. Look. The interviewer went on to ask him, he said, well, what's your favorite ring? And Brady says, the next one. He since won four next ones, right? And he tweeted just this week, so what am I supposed to do until football season starts? 
What am I going to do with the next five months of my life? He's accomplished more than anyone to ever play the game. And it is still not enough. I've got to build more of a football resume vanity. Where do your own aspirations end? When you get that title? Or that office? Or when your children get the accomplishments that you so desperately want for them? Vanity. The preacher moves on to riches. He says, I was loaded. Enough money to make Solomon, me, blush. I had slaves. I'm not going to get into the morality or what it looked like in the Old Testament, but suffice it for us to say this morning, this is a huge status symbol. Male and female slaves. I had an unheard of amount of herds and flocks. I had silver and gold. I found this article this week on marketwatch.com that sort of played with Solomon's assets. What would this have looked like today? And they estimate that he would have received $40 billion in tributes every year. Estimates that his wealth would have been at $2.2 trillion. He says, I had a personal choir in my palace for whenever I wanted music. And this wasn't like the choir in the temple. This was male and female. And so some commentators say maybe there was, you know, the option for racy music. But whenever he wanted, sing for me. Okay, that sounds good. Louder. I was powerful, rich. And then, of course, he has many concubines. Maybe I will find satisfaction in feeding my unbridled sexual appetite. Where I can find what I want and get what I want from whom I want, when I want it, will this be enough? Maybe you've spent who knows how many hours Googling for just the right image. Will it finally satisfy? No. Vanity. So what do we do with this? I mean, on some level, pushing back against this philosophy of life seems like common sense. I mean, surely Dr. Phil could tell us that there's a healthier way to approach alcohol and a healthier way to approach, approach accomplishments and relationships and a sex life, all while sitting atop his empire worth $460 million. And you might be thinking, okay, I got it, Joe. So what? My point is this. There is a way, I think, for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that we really do understand the message of this passage. Of course, there's more to life than wine and romance. Of course, we are more than the sum of our accomplishments. But how do we think of Hollywood A-list celebs when we watch from afar and they get to live out the life painted for us in chapter 2? I mean, often we want what they have. We want their life. Or maybe we want our baptized version of their life. But just imagine they put on a cross necklace and they thank Jesus as they accept their Academy Award. And we don't just envy them. We might even call them wise. And too often we mistake success for wisdom. 
To us, a life that appears to be comfortable is a life that appears to be wise. And even the way that we talk about God serves this notion of wisdom. We Christians have a funny way of talking. We have our own pithy expressions and sayings, don't we? We say things like, God showed up, or that was a a God thing, and, and of course those are fine. But we tend to use these expressions in ways that are consistent with the life that we see before us in chapter 2. We get a cash windfall and we say, it was a God thing. Or we get that job that we really want and we say, God showed up. My point is, there's a way of talking about God's work in our lives that actually hinders us from thinking about our mortality and the brokenness and frustration of this world. In fact, sometimes I think it might be in death and hardship that God begins to work in us. And rather, sometimes we see hardship and death and we wonder, might God actually be angry with us? Life has gotten hard, has God forgotten And while I can certainly relate, this isn't wisdom. God is every bit as involved with that new job as he is in the cancer diagnosis, or in the lost job, or in the failing grade, or in the struggling marriage, or in that place in your life where there has been deep longing that hasn't been met. You see, you and I are often quicker to see God's hand in the events of our lives when the events in our lives give us what we want. And yet he might actually be working in us precisely where there is frustration and brokenness. You see, if this passage is really about the vanity of self-indulgence, then we shouldn't rush over the idea that we might be a lot more like this than we think. Maybe you don't drink like this. Maybe you don't drink at all. And maybe you really don't think that much about how much money is in your bank account. But that doesn't mean that we're not self-indulgent. Why else do we so often feel as if we have been robbed of peace or pleasure when things don't go our way? Put another way, who is it that we credit when peace and pleasure don't come our way? Who in your family seems to get in the way of your happiness? Who in your friend group or your neighborhood group? Hold that thought. Again in verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. And this is obviously self-indulgent, right? In verse 1, he says, enjoy yourself. In verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body, indulgence. In verse 4, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself pools. I mean, maybe he does this for the common good or in the name of philanthropy, but when he records it for us here, he says, I did it for myself. I gathered for myself silver and gold. What is he doing? 
He's building for himself a comfortable life in which he does not have to think about death or frustration. Or at the very least, where he can push back against the brokenness of this world. It's like he's rebuilding the Garden of Eden all over again. Pools and gardens, and you you get the image, right? Only this one's just for him. He is determined not to know what frustration and suffering is. And again, our Dr. Phil-like wisdom would say, yeah, that sounds foolish. But stop and think, how do we respond when presented with frustration and suffering? I mean, often we're bewildered by it. Where did this come from? How can this be? This is not on my schedule. And it's bound to have an effect on the way that we treat each other. Again, who are the people in your life with whom you credit with robbing you of happiness? Think about the customer service rep who is slow to understand the precise nature of your problem. How do we speak to them in those moments? What do we feel? How is your mood affected when the technology in your life that's supposed to make life easier just doesn't? Do you ever say things under your breath like I do? Why does this always happen to me? How do you respond that when that one person's negativity seems to affect the entire mood of the family or the neighborhood group or the friends dynamic? Oh, them again. This fallen world is filled with frustration and suffering, and there is a self-indulgent part of us that is doing everything that we can to push back against it. We want paradise, and we want the people in our lives to give it to us. I mean, how does the author, did you notice this? How does the author, the preacher here, speak of others in this passage? Everyone that he speaks of He refers to them by the role that they play in bringing him happiness and pleasure. Male and female slaves, male and female singers, concubines. The word concubine here is apparently a little tricky to translate. I say apparently because I have no idea, but there's a lot of people who are smarter than me that I've been reading this week. And they said that the word used here is related to the word breast, and so maybe a more literal translation would be an abundance of breasts. In this passage, he seems to only speak of people in terms of what they can do for him, how they might help him push back against frustration so he can bask in pleasure. But there's no consideration of their frustration. There's no consideration of loving others as he loves himself. This isn't wisdom. You know, we all have ideas of how we want to be treated by our friends, our bosses, our parents, our children. How do we treat them when they are playing a role in the frustration and the suffering that comes our way? Not as people as obstacles to our happiness. And like the author of Ecclesiastes, behind it all is a longing to get back to a garden where there is no death or suffering. 
I mean, everything was perfect there, but it begs the question, where did they lose it in the first place? I mean, in the garden originally, there was cultivation, right? Sex, laughter enjoyed perfectly to the glory of God. Presumably even wine. All of these things very good. But Adam and Eve disobeyed. They sinned. And this is precisely why the world now is filled with suffering and death. It's also why we have a profound selfish response to this suffering and death. And I think that we have to frame the conversation not simply around death and brokenness, but around sin and judgment. To be clear, it is right and appropriate for us to long for creation to be as it was, to long for the garden. We were made for that kind of world. And it is appropriate to be grieved and to groan by the death and the brokenness and the suffering that comes our way. We're made for something else. But often we don't just groan for a better world. We respond in selfish and indulgent ways. It's helpful to see that our self-indulgent desires are impractical. It's helpful to see how they lead us to treat others as obstacles and not as people. But more than that, I want us to see how self-indulgence is sin. And that there's judgment for sin. You know, Jesus tells a parable in our New Testament reading that is so similar to our passage to me in many ways. Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We have another rich man who also addresses himself. He builds great things and is concerned only with his own happiness. And both passages highlight the reality of death. And while Ecclesiastes reminds us that death is coming, Jesus, however, in our gospel, reminds us that God will require our souls. Which is the Bible's way of saying that we will stand before Jesus at judgment. Think about it, all the folly and the self-indulgence in this world will be made manifest for all to see. And Jesus says, when you indulgently lay up treasures for yourself, this is the opposite of laying up treasures or being rich toward God. And those who exploit others in the name of rebuilding an Eden for themselves will be judged. But Jesus will also have friends on that day, in addition to enemies. And his friends are those who are found to be rich toward God. And the question is, are you rich toward God? 
Because one day all of us will give an account to him for our lives. And who will he deem rich toward himself? Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8, we read this. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Our sins need redeeming, and scripture tells us that's exactly what we have in the death of Jesus on a cross And insofar as Jesus forgives us, he is lavishing upon us the riches that we need to have towards God. The riches that we need toward God must be given to us. And in these riches, we not only find forgiveness, but we find the source of true happiness and pleasure and purpose in Jesus. But we forget Praise the God who is rich in grace towards sinners, who sends his son to die for the guilty, self-indulgent ones. Jesus died for your sins, that you might stand on the solid ground of his life and death and resurrection, that when you see him face to face, you will be rich toward him. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that in so many ways we have forgotten to see your goodness towards us, your grace towards us. We have forgotten to see that you are the source of all that we need And even as we are reminded, Lord, we'll be tempted again and again to seek our happiness and contentment elsewhere. And so we ask that as you show us in this season and as we walk through Ecclesiastes that we have run the wrong way, that you would call us back again and again to yourself. That we would be satisfied in you, that we would be changed by you, that in your grace we find ourselves with all the riches of heaven. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.